So, if you watch Banged Up Abroad, Locked Up Abroad in America, the episode The Gold Smuggler is here with us in the studio today. Piers has come down from Camden. <laughs> and we're going to get into more of the story and what he's been doing since the episode. So, what the hell were you doing in Nepal in the first place? I... Um... I was attempting to smuggle some gold um, from Hong Kong to Nepal with three other friends uh, that I'd met in Hong Kong. And we all had four stone, four pounds each of gold, um, which had been given to us at the airport in Hong Kong in the toilets. And uh, we wore... It was in a, a sort of multi-pocketed denim waistcoat, which we wore under a shirt. And I think we put a suit jacket on as well. And, yeah, it was quite heavy because, you know, I was about 12 stone at the time and I suddenly was 16 stone. <laughs> <laughs> and four stone of that was gold. And, um, you know, we were told um, that we just had to sort of um, sit on the plane and go through gate... Uh, six or something like that where where a woman in a purple sari would wave us through <laughs> and we would get um uh two thousand dollars who's telling you this um this was um the, the the american guy who um was a sort of ringleader of us four he'd done this run before and you know he had done it successfully and been paid and recruited uh, me, uh, an Australian friend of mine, and um, a French guy that we hadn't met before who was a maitre d' of a restaurant in uh, <laughs> Hong Kong. It sounds like a very bad joke. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't very funny at the time, but nowadays, you know, I can have a good laugh about it. So this is your first run, you're saying? Yeah. You've got this eclectic mix of characters. Yeah. How old are you at this point? Um... I think I was around 22, 23. And what circumstances have led you to being in a men's bathroom in Hong Kong with these people? What's, uh, what's brought you here? What's brought age? me here? I um, was travelling. I went... I, 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 I'd been ill, basically, in England, I, uh, and I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I had no energy at all. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, it was really horrible, and sort of panic attacks and depression. Um, it turned out that it... I didn't know at the time, but it was a, it was an underactive thyroid. And I, But I felt that if I went... I felt um, if I went, you know, away travelling, maybe I'd feel better, and I did feel better, because, um, you know, when you're in a, in a, warm, a warmer climate... Um, your underactive thyroid is much less um, obvious. Uh, um, so I, I've, I went out to Australia um, with a friend of mine and travelled around Australia backpacking and then to Indonesia and then Malaysia and then Singapore and eventually to Hong Kong where I got a job erecting the seating for the Hong Kong Rugby Sevens, <laughs> which was <laughs> which is good. You know, a bit of bit of um, manual labour on on a, on a work site, uh, on on a, on a sort of building site, as it were, and then um, I did a bit of work as an extra on um, 
couple of uh, TV. I was in a Jackie Chan film actually, uh, as a as a chauffeur, as well. Um, I've never seen it, but there is a film. Do you know what it's called? No, I'd love to. Know. If anyone's a Jackie Chan, um, uh, what's the word? You know, well, expert in any way, and has got every single film. Please, you know, watch every single film again. See if you can see me. Put it in the comments section. <laughs> see if you can see me as a as a chauffeur while some dodgy deal goes on behind me. It's a premonition. Uh, yeah, and um, so yeah, I, I um, and I was I also taught English to Chinese kids, which was good fun, and um, you know started running out of money, and then this oh, this offer, this idea, turned up, and I I remember at the time I wanted to go to Japan, and you needed a thousand pounds in your bank account to go to Japan. So whilst two thousand dollars doesn't sound a lot to risk your freedom for in back in those days it was obviously more than it is now and um for a you know somebody who's traveling it's it's a, a significant um chunk and uh, you know that was that was the plan you traveling solo you got a girlfriend or anything or you're lone wolf i was a lone wolf by then i i had traveled i'd gone out to australia with uh an old friend of mine and he had had to come back after about six months, and I just carried on um, going. You know, you get um, once you're out there, you build up your, your your sort of confidence. I think, well, you know, it's very easy going to other countries and just arriving on your own. It's good for you, you know. Yeah. You, you, you sort of learn to make friends quite quickly and and um, just sort of muck in. So, when did you first hear about the gold smuggling? Um. I suppose I must have been a, a, a couple of you know, four or five months in. I, I was staying at this hostel in Mong Kok, which is uh, uh, one of the districts in Hong Kong, and um, a German guy who I had seen around. You know, I think we went for a drink, and he sort of revealed that he was a tour guide, but that he had done this gold run, uh, and it was quite easy and quite successful, and. It, it appealed to me, um, not just for the financial reasons, but um, I wanted to uh, to prove that I was um, better, uh, you know, back, that I was feeling healthy. And um, I, I suppose, you know, young man, um, testosterone, wanting to do something a bit crazy, you know, you know, and just get stuck in, really. And, um, you know, well, you've done it yourself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> young men do um, stupid things at times, and um, that's just the way it is. We're invincible, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not now we're not. We feel old and sort of uninvincible. But in those days, you know, the early 20s, you know... Um, you you have a, a a curiosity about the world, and um, you know you want to uh, find out who you are and whether you're capable of various shit. So when you signed up, how was it explained to you what was going to go down? Uh, well, his name was Rhett, the American, and he just explained that, you know. We are taking gold from Hong Kong to Nepal, where 
It will then be transported across the border to India, where gold is um, thir- uh, there's a markup, a significant markup of thirty five percent or something. So, by smuggling gold into Nepal, you're not paying the the duty on it. Um, therefore, there's an arbitrage where you can then sell it for a thirty five percent profit, which uh, you know people would do all day if they could. And you know, he was explained that we, you know, um, it had been done before by him, and it was a smooth, well set up operation. That customs in Nepal were paid um, to allow us through. They you knew that we were coming, and you know, it was just you know, wave us through, and all of that kind of stuff. And that's how it had worked previously, and that's how I hoped it would work again, but it didn't. <laughs> you know. Yeah, we just the podcast prior to you actually. He was talking about the um, setup where they tell you there's someone in customs who's going to let you through, and how it doesn't quite pan out that a lot, a lot of the times. Well, yeah, um, yes. I mean, it was a complex. I think you know the, the, the woman wanted to, the woman in the purple sari wanted to let us through, and she didn't know that. We had been informed upon. Um, we were basically the, the the guys who hired us in Hong Kong. I think they sensed that this gold smuggling run was coming to an end, and that maybe Nepal was going to start putting metal detectors in the airport, like they do in India, and which is why you had to take it in through Nepal because no metal detectors as such. Therefore, you can. You can smuggle in large amounts of metal, yeah, <laughs> and preferably precious metal. Um, and so, um, where was I? What um, I was going on about the yeah the metal detectors. I think um, I can't remember what I'm on about. All right, so you've suited up in the toilet oh, yeah, in right. Hong Kong. Yeah. How long is this flight now before you're going to hit this metal detector? <laughs> well, actually, gonna... somebody could research that. <clears throat> I can't fully remember. I think it's about five hours, Hong Kong. Five-hour flight. Hong Kong to Nepal. And you're weighed down now with all this. Yeah. And you're thinking you're just going to breeze through customs at the other side. Yeah. The woman in the sari is going to let you through. Yeah. I'm not saying we're not sweating and we're not sort of nervous and adrenalised and, and all of that. Because um, we are. Are you sober? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah no question of that. Although, interestingly, one of the stories that emanated after our arrest was that we had been drunk, and that's why we had been spotted. It was bullshit. But that was... Yeah, because the guys... in That's what I was trying to say earlier. The guys in Hong Kong who hired us to do it, Nepalese guys, they thought that this was coming to an end. So what they did is they effectively stole the gold off the owners who, who, by informing customs that we were coming um, and if you inform customs that uh, gold smugglers are arriving you get a quarter of the value of the gold seized so it's a big big incentive this was 1.6 million dollars worth of gold they would be in line to get uh, 400 thousand dollars worth of gold by a packing us full of gold which they did about as much as an individual can lit- physically take uh, and then B, 
Packing's full of gold and beef, phoning up, saying, but they're on their way. And it was like, but these, these guys in Hong Kong were double-crossing the, um, the mafia in, in Nepal who actually put the money up for the gold. So a very dangerous, uh, dangerous thing to do. And, in fact, they did get uh, murdered for it. All right, well, take us through the minute you got off the flight. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I think we, yeah, hit by a wall of um, intense heat and uh, a long walk across um, shimmering tarmac um, into the uh, arrivals area. We then had to queue up to show our passports and pay, I think, uh, an, arri- uh, an airport tax or something of $20 each, which had been given to us by... One of the guys who was overseeing us on the plane. I think there were a couple of guys who were seated around and just keeping an eye on us. They didn't have any gold, but they were making sure that, I don't know, we got on the plane, we didn't muck around or, you know, obviously want to keep an eye on on, on, on the gold. And um, we then went through from the passport place to the customs hall which is a big bustling um you know airport um arrival place and there were a number of tables um each with a number and sure enough um well yeah there was a problem really because Rhett, the american who was in charge of everything he was expecting to see somebody else and he panicked a bit and he thought oh god is this the right gate um, is this the right person? I was, you know, he was told on the plane, gate number six. And then he said, oh, God, you know, did I hear that right? And it was just, a, you know, So, so there was it. supposed to be a person at that gate that was going to accommodate you guys? Yeah, a woman in a purple sari. A woman in a purple sari. And sure enough, there was a woman in a purple sari. So we, we eventually just thought, Christ, well, we can't, you know, we just got to get on with it and... and, and, and um, she, sensing our concerns, sort of gave us a little uh, beckon. And that was like, okay, right, so that is the right woman then. Um, so anyway, we, you know, I think uh, Eric, uh, no, sorry, Rhett went first, bags on, perfunctory check of uh, his bag. Yes, yeah, thank you very much, off you go. Um, the Australian um, Paul, next... Perfunctory check of bag. Thank you very much. Off you go. And I put my bag on and another sort of check. Thank you very much. Off you go. And so the other two have already sort of gone on. And um, and I just sort of um, wait for Eric, the Frenchman, who's last. And he puts his bag on the table. And suddenly I hear this shouting from the other side of the bloody customs hall. Wait, I don't know what, what, what was being shouted. Some gibberish in, in Nepalese and this little bastard with a moustache about four foot five <laughs> wanker um, to, ran up to Eric with his handheld metal detector and sort of oh. Oh, not like this and he, went, and he went off as I say as I've said before it went off like a car alarm you know a burglar alarm or something you know it's just like all oh, this fucking noise and it's just like you know, I'm just st- standing there, and in in a, in a I don't know, watching my life 
unfold by the second uh, before me. So if you three guys have already got through and he's not got through, do you guys think there's a chance you guys, it's, it's just him going to get arrested? Or have, you got, have they got all you guys? Well, the other two have gone on into the the airport, you know. Um, so it's me and Eric have been stopped. Yeah. The other two aren't there. So they could have got away with it, you think? They could have possibly, but, um, you know, they were expecting four people and pretty soon um, a couple of they, guards ran out and found... Uh, uh, Rhett and Paul in the, um, you know, the next bit of the airport before the, you know, the doors to, to freedom, you know. And so um, they were caught and we were all then bundled into a little room outside of the customs uh, hall and, um, you know, our <laughs> multi-pocketed denim waistcoats were taken off us um, put on the table and some uh, character, you know, then sort of uh, with a pair of scissors sort of cut open all the... And there's just this big shimmering pile of gold. Um, I think they're called tails. Uh, they're, they're sort of biscuit-size, thinnish slabs of gold. You know, the first time we'd seen the gold, it was certainly an impressive uh, sight and what we didn't realize it was a bit it turned out to be the biggest ever seizure of gold in Nepal what was it worth to- in total 1.6 million dollars um, 1.6 million back then yeah um i suppose in you know i think that's what was paid for the gold in hong kong and therefore it would have been um over 2 million dollars worth um in India, which is where it was destined for, where I think well, gold is used a lot for obviously for jewellery, but also for religious ceremonies and um, things like that. Gold leaf. And with the price of gold going up since then, probably worth over ten million in today's value, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've thought about investing in gold <laughs> recently, actually. What with the parlous state of the, the you know. The British economy at the moment, you know, it's probably not a bad uh, idea. Gold's always a, a classic. Or cannabis. <laughs> yeah, cannabis. That wouldn't be a bad one either. So, you're in the room, gold's on the table, you're fucked. What's going through your head? Um, Did you know the penalty? We had inquired... Um, because we'd had to do a, um, a dress rehearsal where we met the two Nepalese dodgepots in this towering, notorious tower block called Chungking Mansions where, you know, it had brothels in it and you could hire a room by the hour and all sorts of dodgy nonsense. And it was a, just an absolute... It was packed and probably a death trap, you know, basically. A very dodgy... It's probably been knocked down long ago now, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we'd met there and we'd had to show that we were strong enough to pull on the the gold. And, the you know, it was quite uh, exciting for us because the, one of the Nepalese guys made it very clear that he had a, a gun, a, 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 you know, a, a pistol uh, in his... Um, uh, in, in a... What do you stick pistols in? Holster. Holster. He had a holster and a pistol. So that was a quite exciting, you know, and it's all all 
you know, thrilling stuff. They looked the part, they did gangster out faces. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Although, you know, I now look back and and try and remember that, but all I can remember is the banged-up abroad gangsters. (laughs) So I I can't really remember what the real gangsters look like. It's sort of fiction uh, uh, and art. In my episode, the neo-Nazi skinheads, the Aryan Brotherhood, come and threaten me. Oh, yeah. But in the the, um, banged-up abroad episode, they have a black one. There's a black member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Really? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, who's the casting director in that one? <laughs> That's not going to work. <laughs> so um, you're in the room. What, what what's going through your head now? You, you you're aware of the penalty because you've been at this rehearsal. No, I'm not aware of the penalty because at the rehearsal we had asked what happens and we'd been told that we might that we would just be deported. You know, okay. we'd have a slap on the wrist, maybe one night um, in a cell or whatever, and um, we'd be uh, deported from, from from the country for being silly and foolish, um, you know. And, and, I don't know, we believed that, and that was um, a mistake. So you're in a dream world right now, then? You think you're just going to walk... Well, yeah, it's still a terrifying experience. Did they strip search you and all that stuff? Not really, no. No, I mean, um, no, they didn't, but there was a lot of shouting. They were sort of quite angry. You know, it's like, well... You know. Have they all got guns and stuff as well? No, they haven't. They're, they're sort of airport officials. Yeah. Um, customs officials, but shouting... You know, unnecessary sort of um, treating it as, you know, there wasn't any sort of dignity. There was shouting and anger from lots of little brown men. And it's like, well, you know, why the anger? You know, it's like, you've caught us. We haven't paid the duty on this goal, all right. But, you know, we haven't um, been buggering small children, you know, for fuck's sake. Um so, and there were documents were produced which we had to bloody sign, and of course we didn't have any legal representation, and we couldn't read Nepalese, but we had to sign them just to shut them up because really, yeah, were you worried you were signing your life away? Hmm? Were you worried you were signing your life yeah. away? Yeah, we were worried, and we were, um, you know, we weren't certain of this deportation thing. Uh, so, yeah, it was a lot of fear and. Uh, just trying to keep your, your, keep yourself together and not panic. Does there come a point where someone is translating what they're saying into English for you? No, because most Nepalese people do speak um, pidgin English. Okay. Uh, but it was all the written stuff, which was, was never translated, you know, what we had to sign. So we didn't really know what we were signing. But, you know... It transpired afterwards when we could work out what was going on that they wanted to get us processed as quickly as possible to avoid any uh, involvement of the embassy or lawyers or any shit like that, any of the normal stuff that you'd expect. But this is a third world country, you know, and you don't get that kind of normal treatment. They don't want you to exercise your consular rights. No. Yeah. So what? What? How long are you in that room for? Where'd you go next? Oh Christ! I mean, 
we must have been in there for uh, five or uh, five or six hours, and we and we left in 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 darkness. We were put in handcuffs. Did they bring the media to the room and do a, a shot? No. No, they. No, they didn't. Okay. I don't think. I can't re- recall that. Although, <laughs> we. The next, we were then taken off in a jeep, in darkness, with armed guards, and uh, driven into the night. And again, we weren't told where we were going. It was like fucking, what's going on here? Uh, and we pulled up outside. Eventually, uh, 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 well, it turned out to be outside of prison and, and a door opened in the wall and we were ushered through and suddenly, you know, all these, it was, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and all these prisoners around us and, hello, <laughs> how's it going? All right, yeah, peers, <laughs> English, yes. <laughs> Is this like a, a place for unsentenced inmates then? No, it was just a prison. What, what's um, the name of the prison, John? The name of the prison. The um, I don't, I can't remember the name of that first prison. The second prison, because we, we were transferred after a couple of months to a, actually a, a, a bigger and, and a nicer prison. That was called Badragol. B H A D R A G O L. And that was next to a, the Gurkhas um, barracks. I seem to remember that, yeah. Um, but the first one, I don't, I don't know. It was a smaller, more crowded uh, prison with literally a load of uh, rooms around a central sort of rectangular square. And, um, you know, we got um, put in there and, and we were still confident that, you know, we'd maybe spend a night here, but that tomorrow we'd be on a plane home. Yeah. So you're in a cell then with your friends that not separated you. We're not. Yeah, we were never ever in a cell in Nepal. They don't seem to have cells. It's just you're inside and you can't leave. Right. And you, there are rooms, but none of them have got doors on or locks. Really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there are no. Um, also, in, initially, slightly worryingly, there's no screws. No guards. No guards are allowed in the prison. No guards allowed in. Unless some, you know, some, something very serious goes on. But generally, the prisons in Nepal are run by the prisoners. OK. And that works pretty well. Yeah. Strangely, you know, it, it, it works pretty well. The guards are on the outside. And obviously, you know, if something, if some riot kicked off, they'd, but, you know, generally it's like, we stay out, and this is the way it's done. I don't know. It's a cultural thing. So, in this room, where do you sleep? What's the what's the setup? Um, there's just. Um, I think we were given a blanket each and shown um, uh, from what I remember, it's uh, uh, just straw matting um, on um, on the floor on a concrete floor. And I, <laughs> I slept like a baby. <laughs> so they had to wake me up the next morning. I like, oh, no, <laughs> that was a good night's kid. I don't, it's really weird. And uh, wake up, and I could not believe that I was actually in prison. It was surreal and odd, and I had to keep pinching myself because 
I'd previously studied law uh, at Manchester University and therefore looked at the English penal system and visited... Um, uh, um, what's that prison, the famous Victorian prison in Manchester? Strange ways. Strange ways. Strange ways, here we come. I'd visited that and thought, fuck me, look at this. You know, I've been, actually, I think I remember being wolf whistled once. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, I was quite attractive in those days um, to a, a desperate um, lifer. And, um, I, yeah, so I, I had, it had been in my head, God, what's prison like? And I had studied the English penal system, but I didn't expect to be studying the Nepalese penal system from such close quarters, as it were. We had a prison guard on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yes. He's from HMP Manchester. That's what they call it now. How oh, is it? He was, he was giving us the horror stories from there. Yeah. I must watch that. I, I saw that on your website, and I'd be very interested to uh, to uh, to watch that one because um, you know. How are you getting fed? Um, we are getting fed initially. I think you know. I think on that first night or something, you know, people were were happy to to give us some food and and things like that. But um, quickly, it was established that various prisoners' wives would come to the front gate, uh, and if you had a, some money, they would go to the nearby market and come back with a bag of um, uh, <laughs> buffalo was a main meat. Buffalo? Yeah, which was fairly chewy, uh, but, you know, it was, it was meat. I think we got a chicken for Christmas Day. That's the closest we could get to a turkey, but that was... That was a few months down the line. The curry's popular out there. Yeah. We had a, a guy called Bubba who we paid to cook for us. Um, so we lived quite well, really, because, you know, we did obviously have money, and money does talk out there. So for about a five or a month, he would cook for us and make some fantastic goat uh, and buffalo curries and, you know, some vegetables and rice. And he actually... Managed to, over a number of days, under my encouragement, uh, managed to create sort of oat bread, which was very good with scrambled eggs in the morning. I can, <laughs> and it was round and made of flattened oats and cooked and uh, oat and water, oats and water or something like that, and, and you know a bit of salt and um, yeah. So um, we we ate. Pretty well, actually. And, um, you know, we had a guy who did our washing up and a guy who did the washing of our clothes. And there was a kind of a small library there. And basically, you, in both of the prisons we stayed at, you wander about during the day, pottering about, you know, maybe playing a game of chess with somebody, maybe reading a book, maybe sitting down and having a cup of tea in the, in the main square. Um, it, so the Nepalese... It's not a draconian system. You have lost your liberty, but you're not um, treated cruelly. So did the inmates think you guys have got money? Maybe we can extort money out yeah. of Yeah, well, there, was an, there certainly is an element of that. Um, it's a very uh, corrupt and venal society, uh, very poor, and therefore... 
some people came out of the woodwork and, you know, it was one of the nightmares of being in prison abroad is that, uh, especially in a poor uh, place where it doesn't, you don't speak the languages, you're just... Uh, you're without help and you're without any sort of personal guidance as to is this guy lying is this guy bullshitting is what's going on what's he trying to get you know it's like it's a very lonely experience in that in that regard so what kind of hustles did they come at you with um well you know um in return for money I, you know, we have a contact on the outside who's been with the government and blah, 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 and this kind of thing. Um, you know, and when it was established that we were given a four-year sentence for gold smuggling and we weren't going to go the next day, you know, you do think, fucking hell, four years... Um, in your 20s, when you should be having sex and partying, uh, or, or at least have your bloody liberty, um, you know, you do think, well, we've got to get out before that time somehow. And therefore, you look at every option. How soon after your arrest did your family find out? Um, uh, it would probably be... Uh, about a week, because we, we, we didn't actually manage to get in touch with the embassy for about a week. And so it was when the vice consul, this nasty woman, um, came and visited, she was totally sort of unsympathetic and, you've done your, you know, you're a criminal, you're, you know, blah, blah. It's like, well, give us a break. You know, fucking, uh, you know um she would have, I think, informed my uh, mother and father. And, um, you know, I think some message came through that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or something like that, you know, uh, which was good. But it, it was, you know, I think that's one of the most difficult things about being incarcerated is knowing the pain it causes your parents. Because rightfully, they, you know, they... They worry about you when you're on when you're when you're free, let alone in a third world bloody dungeon, you know, with nutters and charmlessers and uh, murderers and rapists sleeping next to you. You know. What was the first actual communication with your mother? Um, I honestly don't remember that. Was there a I, phone call or a no? Did well, they come visit in the. First prison we stayed at, we weren't allowed. There wasn't a phone call facility. So it would have been a letter or possibly a telegram. Uh, you know, those are the days when that kind of thing happened. This is be before emails or anything. Um, so I think I would have... I think she probably would have, um, I must ask her actually, she probably won't remember either, but I, I think it would have been a, a fax probably to the embassy delivered to me and then a, a, you know, a handwritten letter back probably posted, uh, you know, and, and, and that's kept 
that going, as you will um, no, no doubt be aware, it's very important to um, it, 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 have communication. I mean, a visit from friends and family would have been lovely, but I was in Nepal, so that was lonely. But, uh, you know, a letter or some kind of acknowledgement that uh, people are thinking about you is, is, is good. So perhaps going through your head, I mean, my situation, you know, I, w- I went off to uni, you went off to uni, you, probably your mum's pride and joy. You're off out the, around the world backpacking and stuff. Mm. And you're, you may be thinking, you know, how is my mum going to react to this? Is she going to support me? Is she going to blame me? Is she going to... What, 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 what were you thinking and what was her initial reaction in, the let- in that first letter? Oh, her initial reaction was total support and I never questioned that for one minute. Uh, I knew her well and she had been very supportive to me during what was called ME, but was my illness didn't turn out to really be ME, although who knows what ME is. But um, she'd been very supportive to me during that time and I had a very good relationship with her and, you know, and, and with my, my father. So I knew they would be supportive. And, you know, what are you going to do? You bloody idiot. What the fuck have you, you know? <laughs> it's not going to help anyone in prison, is it? You know, you've just got to say, look, I love you. Hang in there and don't forget to brush your teeth. You know, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, but, you know, they don't know how much you're lying or putting on a a brave face and that, in fact, it is a highly dangerous place and you could end up being stabbed or killed. You know, I mean, God, I mean, you, you, you were in a, an American. That's just insane place to go to prison. You want to Arizona. go to bloody Nepal. Arizona. Did you see anyone get stabbed or killed? No. Uh, there was a couple of scuffles. But <laughs> incredibly, everyone had knives because everyone was doing their own cooking. So it was so fucking... Not only did everyone have knives and there were no screws, but there were children in the prison because the, the, the little boys and girls of the prisoners were allowed to visit. And stay for a meal and things like that. So you've got knives and children in a prison? How would that go down in Arizona? It would be insanity. So you've got to respect the the, the Nepalese for seemingly having a much more uh, humane uh, penal system than uh, we have managed to muster in the West. Is the drug activity in the prison? Um... Small amounts of, of hash. Uh, one um, visitor, uh, I uh, quite quickly got a um, a visitor. Uh, somebody came, a tourist, and I gave them a, a little um, piece of paper that I'd drawn with a ball and chain and four, West, four naughty but nice Westerners, Eric Pierce, Paul and Rhett, would appreciate a visit. Uh, and they went and put their, they photocopied that kindly and, and put it in hostels and uh, hotels and, and a few places around Nepal. And then we got various visitors, which was, um, which was amusing and um, also quite frustrating because quite often you get sort of some rather attractive women coming along and you're just thinking, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> how private is the visitation area? Um, not that private. I was offered a room 
for my... I had a German girlfriend at the time uh, who was a Lufthansa air stewardess. Hitler's sort of wet dream kind of woman, about <laughs> six foot blonde, big and quite tasty. Uh, I, uh, and she was going to come and visit me and I was going to be given a room and, you know, go through that ghastly sort of prearranged, let's have a shag now kind of thing, you know. It, <laughs> Which probably I would have been very keen on, but you know, um, you know, that never came to fruition. All I got was because um, she, she she couldn't make it in the end for some reason, and so we got you know a string of uh, people, and that's why I'm t- talking about this. I've, I've I've come Ronnie Corbett like back to the point here. You were talking about drugs. One guy did give us give me a. a, a, a a cigarette packet, which was just a solid brick of uh, hash, yeah, which in which was quite nice. I'm not really a big smoker. Um, yeah, in the end, I gave when we eventually did get out. I still had a lump left and gave it to Bubba as a <laughs> as a thank you, and he was quite appreciative of that. But we didn't. I didn't see anyone doing heroin, and certainly no cocaine or nothing. Uh, just just uh, a few little bit of smoking. Did you have an actual sentencing hearing? Kind of, really. We were taken back the next day after being put in the prison overnight. We were taken back to the airport and we thought, well, we're going to be put on a plane. In fact, in Nepal, the, the court is at the airport, the customs court, and the bloody bloke who arrested us little guy was the fucking judge <laughs> you bastard you mustachioed wanker <laughs> sorry I'm getting carried away <laughs> the guy who arrested you was your judge yeah oh. so I knew I was doomed we knew we were doomed then I mean it was like <laughs> fucking hell this is scandalous um, and he rushed everything through and you know um it was done really quickly because they wanted to get us put inside before any involvement of anyone on the outside or any... Um, it was all... He was in He was in with, with the smugglers. He'd arrested us. They were going to share the fucking gold amongst them. You know, <laughs> fuck me. And he's the judge. It's crazy chaos. And I've got to bloody negotiate my way out of this madness. Utter madness. Um, so we, you know, um, I think we were taken back to the to the customs court for a couple of days, and then it quickly four years for each of you, and that's basically what everyone got every time anyone was caught smuggling gold. It's four, it was four years, so you know it wasn't any more or any less than whatever everyone else got. From just being in remand, had you come to the realization that that was what you was going to get, or was it a shock? Well, I think. Careful, careful with the tapping as well. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to. Th- I think it was a, a, about a day into the trial that this horrible, slow dawning realization that um, we did. There was a, a a Nepalese lawyer turned up and. Um, he kind of informed us what 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 the score was. This isn't someone you've paid for. It's like a public defender, is it? 
We did end up paying him, I think, but you know, he, he, he was some sort of ambulance chaser, lawyer. You know, oh, so, some Westerners. Let's have a word with them. And of course, you know, without anyone else to speak to, we were keen to uh, employ him to try and negotiate. Uh, well, to to at least tell us what the hell was going on. So, the moment you went from a realization of "I'm not going home tomorrow" to four years. Mm. How did that make you feel? Oh, that was a sickening sort of cold porridge in the pit of your stomach feeling. I mean, it really is. Uh, you know, you feel wretched because um, it's you can't imagine. I mean, at the age of 22, you can't imagine. No, I'm 52 now, but and, and four years... You can kind of picture it a bit better, but at that age, it seems like forever. In the prime of your life. In the prime of your life. Also, you know, at that point, we didn't know (coughs) how dangerous Nepalese prison was or all of that stuff or how, you know, deleterious it was to your physical health or your mental health. Um... So all of these fears are whirling around in your subconscious and, um, you know, you just... Um, this is a great challenge of your your personality. You know, can you keep it together? Can you retain some dignity? And can you steer a, a course out of this maze? And yes, you can. And what helped you maintain strength mentally? Um, I think I was afraid. Um, there was a, there was a guy. There was one other white person in the prison, a guy called Hamish, who had also been done for gold smuggling, and he'd been there for about three and a half years, and he was absolutely mental, doolally. He was jib- talking gibberish and speaking in tongues and whirling his eyes. He'd, he'd lost it. He'd absolutely lost it. And I was terrified that this was, you know, the future of me. Uh, so I don't know what uh, fortitude I, 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 I found, but um, I suppose it helped that I was not in there on my own. I was there with three people that I knew, two of which were good friends. Rhett was an arsehole, really. Um, but um, the Australian and the Frenchman were, were, were good guys. And we were allowed to share a room with, with those guys. And, for the and entire that, duration, you shared a room with those guys for all the whole four years? Well, we didn't spend um, four years in prison, thankfully. Okay. It turned out to be eight months and five days. Okay. Um, because we managed to get out early through the efforts of my uncle. What do you think broke down the other bloke, the white bloke then? Brought down the what? What do you think broke him down psychologically about the experience? Um, you know, he may have been a, a fragile mentally before going into prison, and that was, you know, the final straw. Or um, he may, you know, dis- deciding to smuggle gold may have been a mental decision in the first place. I don't know. What well, some people break down when they're not even in prison, you know. Um, Life can be difficult, and people have um, weaknesses mentally. And the problem is, 
you don't know where what your w- mental weaknesses are until you're tested. And that's a frightening thing, because it's like, well, where am I going here? And, uh, you know, and will I bend or will I break? It's a stress test, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's a massive stress test. Yeah. So, which is one of the good things about prison, because once you've been in it and got out, there's very little else that can really concern you a great deal. I mean... It's an amazing um, um, stress test. You know, and if you survive that, then, you know, you you can survive anything. What was the temperatures like there? And was there, like, dangerous insects or anything? Hmm. The temperature during the day was warm, but in in the evening was was quite cold because it was on the the foothills of the... um, not quite the foothills, but the Himalayas you could see in the distance. Wow. Um, so um, it got quite chilly at night, and I had um, three blankets sewn together as a duvet sort of thing, <laughs> pretty rough, hairy. And I had a, a foam mattress, uh, a thin bit of yellow foam, which I slept on, which was quite narrow. And um, I, would al- <laughs> I would always wear a T-shirt as well, and I remember one morning um, lying on my front um, and just thinking, hang on a second, I can feel something between my shoulder blades under my T-shirt and it's scrabbling around. <laughs> it was a f- <laughs> and it came to realise I've got a bloody mouse under my T-shirt between my shoulder blades. And it's like, oh, I'm not too bothered about mice myself, but I don't want to get bitten by a Nepalese one, which, you know, scurrying around in, in, in the dirt. And, you know, um, I don't think you've ever seen a human go from that to that, and jiggling around like this. <laughs> and then the mouse dropped down and legged it, thankfully. But um, that was... Um, and the, the, Strangely, the mice in Nepal, in Nepalese prisons... Uh, I, I like um, they've got conical faces, which makes them comical as well. But they're like um, oh, what was that? Um, what were those mice? Oh, children's program on the moon. The um, uh, mice on the moon, sort of. The, I can see them. I can't remember. I can, what it's yeah, called. well, yeah. they looked exactly like that. Yeah, and they would hold each other's tail and go around the baby five or six of them in a in a in a train wow under under the sort of beds and things yeah, yeah i don't know some strange kind of rodent does that it's just just bonkers just con- continuing the the general bonkers air of everything there <laughs> no cockroaches no not that i recall i don't recall any insect uh, issues i did get the most Frightening flu I've ever had uh, whilst in prison. A proper sort of, I suppose, Asian flu. Um, but I also, you know, um, went to the dentist whilst I was in prison, which was a nice day out. Um, and a very nice um, female English dentist. It was a marvellous day, in fact, because I, 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 I was put in handcuffs and put in a jeep. And um, when we got outside the dentist, this huge crowd of people gathered round to look at this crazy 
Englishman who must be a very dangerous individual, and I would stare at people and oh, yeah, so it was just just a bit of pantomime, a bit of fun, and it really I did treat it like that because. You know what? What can you do? You, you you you've got to take your fun where you can get it, and um, I think people forget. You know, or people don't know. They assume that prison is you know a constant veil of misery, but in fact, you know, there's relaxation, there's fun, there's laughter, there's friendship. Um, you know, you kind of adapt, and um, there's hope and. The, the resilience of the human spirit is makes things, you know, tolerable. There's a lot of gallows humour. Yeah, there's a lot of that as well. <laughs> so yeah. what, what was the lowest day for you for all this? When you got the illness? Um, no, I, I got um, a call from the front gate... Uh, this was about a, uh, a, would it be a couple of months in. The vice consul from the English uh, embassy, the British embassy, um, told me that my father had had a heart attack. Oh dear. And um, that was the lowest point because I thought that, well, he may die. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, Christ, you don't want to fuck. You know, you don't want him dying with you in prison, that would be a bad way to go out. And obviously you'd never see him again. And also the father dying is not a good thing if you get on with him. So that was, you know, just redoubled my efforts to try and negotiate some, try and sort out getting out by hook or by crook. And what effort actually did work? Well, we were initially told to sit tight and the smugglers were going to get us out. So we did. And it, I think it was for the first six weeks or so. And they would visit us and somebody would visit us, a representative from them, and bring a bit of food and clothing and some fruit and what have you. Uh, and say, look, you know, negotiations, sit still, you know, just don't panic. And then the visits dried up, and we discovered that um, they'd only been visiting us to, to, to shut us up, because if we had done an appeal, we would have had to have lodged it within the first six weeks or something like that. So we'd been strung along, and that was another... Real low point, because we had hope that they were telling the truth, and then it was we'd been abandoned. And it's like, oh, Jesus, now, now we're, we're, we're taking a kicking on, on top of a kicking. And then I had this wonderful... Uh, I called him Uncle Tony, but he was actually a second cousin or something. He lived on his own in Shropshire, in a ramshackle cottage and ran a small farm. And as a kid, I had um, gone to stay with him uh, initially with my parents and then on my own. And he'd taught me to drive a tractor and give me, a, you know, let me go out with his shotgun and things like that. And uh, I'd helped out on the farm with his um, 
cows and hay and um, all, all of that kind of stuff. And he was a, 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 a marvellous influence on me and a, and a sort of legendary character. His, his father had been um, Sir Dermot Boyle, who was the chief of the RAF, the Air Chief Marshal, the, the top man in the RAF in the 50s. And Tony had been in the RAF and then had, in conjunction with David Sterling, who I think started the, the SAS, Tony had been a, basically um, a, a James Bond, a, 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 a spy, mm. a totally untraceable spy, you know, uh, uh, a totally um, unknown to the government spy. Um, doing uh, things in, in, in Yemen and Aden and things like that. And um, so he had sent out a message saying, look, um, I'm here if you want, you know, just press the button and, and I'll, be, I'll come out and I'll see what I can do. And having spent time in um, the Middle East and... Those kind of countries, you know, poor and Arab and Asian, uh, he kind of uh, understood how uh, things worked and how people did business and how negotiations were done and and how saving face was very important to people in in those countries. And he, I did push the button. You know, I did say, look, yeah, we've been abandoned. Can you come out? And I think my dad um, put up, uh, you know, paid for his, his his ticket and gave him some spending money um, and financed the whole trip. And uh, a friend of the family had a, 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 fa- a flat somewhere in central Kathmandu, which he used as his base. And he just he he just approached it as a conundrum that he would try and solve, which, you know, obviously he he risked uh, failure, but he was prepared to give it his best shot. And I remember that was one of the, uh, the high points was it would have been two months in and... Suddenly, getting a call, and there he was in his in his uh, typical. He had a he always had a barber on and sort of corduroy, you know, sort of classic old sort of public schoolboy, well spoken, but gritty and tough and very sort of wise and worldly, uh, and it was a great. Um, thrill and source of comfort to see someone that, that I knew, a member of my family and also somebody who I respected a lot. And I knew that, you know, rather than my dad coming out, my dad was, you know, uh, uh, sort of human resources bod who worked for a bank. As good as he was at human resources, he wouldn't have been very good at negotiating, you know, or trying to get me out of a bloody prison. Tony was the right man and the only man for the job and... If he couldn't do it, then you know at least we'd have uh, we'd given it our best shot. And so he set up camp and came to visit and came every day. I think he came every day that he was there. And initially, he 
he started by um, sitting us all down, I think, separately and hearing our version of, of what had gone on and trying to get, you know, exactly what the truth was. And um, we had been unlucky to get in prison, in a way, uh, but we had, all on the other side of that, we had a lot of luck and things fell into place and people popped up and said, well, I think I may be able to help and have a word with so-and-so. No, 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 you know. Oh, Tony, you need to speak to him. Come to this party, you'll meet someone. It's this incredible labyrinth of uh, contacts gradually got put together and um, pressure was put on people gently, you know, and uh, over a period of... Um, well, Tony came out... Actually, I, I can't remember when, when he came out. I think he must have come out after not a couple of months, but maybe four or five months, because he stayed with me until I got out of prison. So he was probably there for, for three three months in all, nudging and nerdling and, and getting us to write letters to... And it was basically making contacts in the right areas, having a word with people first at the home office, then the foreign office, and working their way to get a message to, ultimately, the king. And it was on the king's birthday that we were eventually allowed out as a, as a, as a, um, a clemency. It wasn't a pardon, because... We were guilty, uh, but a, a clemency, you know, a sort of, well, you've served six months of your four years. Um, there's an Australian, a Frenchman, an Englishman, and an American. Now, that's pretty four pretty powerful uh, embassies. We're doing a favour to all of you countries. Now, what can you do if we, you know, we became bargaining chips, pawns on a, on a, on a, on a bigger... Uh, chess game and um, and uh, we were let out on the December the 29th after eight months and uh, five days. Do you think someone was bribed when Tony came in to the picture? Not to my knowledge. Um, Tony always maintained and was very proud of the fact that all of his work was done without um, money. It was just done uh by having meetings with people. And I think what was important, I, you know, I didn't know from the inside, but part of the Nepalese culture, they found it very um, correct and endearing in a, in a way that uh, a relative was out trying to get me out. They thought that was good and the right thing to do. And, you know... Without him there, um, pushing and probing, um, it wouldn't have happened. You know, it's really important to have someone on the outside in a foreign... I would say any foreign prison, if you can. So for these months you were incarcerated, how did you pass the time? Um, I played tennis against the... <laughs> there, was a, there was an old tennis court. Um... Uh, the this was against the chief prisoner who was um, he was the head of the prison he was a murderer 
so I and I was quite good at tennis, but I wasn't that good that day, interestingly <laughs> enough. Did he murder him? Did you know he'd murdered? What? Do you know who he had murdered? Oh, he. Uh, I, I think he'd murdered one one of his family, but he was uh, he was you know the caste system in Nepal. He was quite a he was in a, um, a middle class man, and therefore he had his own flat, which I marvelled at. You know, he had his own flat and his own sort of servants and things like that. Um, and I played tennis against him, but 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 dutifully lost, and. There was a good incident because um, there was some Nepalese uh, religious ceremony where they brought a goat into the prison and that was ritually sort of slaughtered and a curry was made and we sort of mucked in and enjoyed, you know, it was a bit of a party really. And as we approached Christmas, I spoke to this head uh, of the prison and uh, talked about how important this Christian festival was to us and that um, traditionally we celebrated it with some alcohol. And uh, sure enough, we got a bottle of vodka. It was lovely to get pissed after... This was on December, This was on Christmas Day. After So this was you know, eight months of sobriety. Doesn't take, take much vodka to give you a nice buzz. And we also managed to get a chicken in, as I mentioned earlier. And, um, uh, you know, so, so, so they, <laughs> we managed to convince them that you know, Christmas Day was very important for us culturally, you know, and that we needed all this stuff, you know. And so, the, you know, Christmas in prison is, uh, you know, I also spent my birthday in prison. And, uh, you know, you have to make, uh, make the most of it, don't you? What other sports facilities did they have? Um, they didn't have any other sports facilities. There was a, a sort of, I would say, I would call it a machine gun nest at each corner of the compound in the second prison. But it wasn't really. It was it was a guard with an old Lee Enfield 303 from the First World War. You know, <laughs> probably couldn't have hit me if it, if it had tried. Um, and I would, um, I would walk in the evening... I did have a, a Walkman, and I did have uh, Actung Baby, uh, an album by James, I think seven, and I had Yes Please by the Happy Mondays, which was their last and possibly not their best album. But, uh, you know, uh, any music was good. I also had the best of the Stone Roses, or the Stone Roses' first album, so that was good. No Morrissey? No, I only had four tapes. I would have liked some some Morrissey, you know. And I would, I would either, you know, I'd either go clockwise and walk, you know, do sort of 30 or so laps and, you know, just have a bit of routine, a bit of exercise, or, or I'd go anti-clockwise if I was being particularly rebellious. Um, and um, all the time, you know, looking at how to escape. I don't know whether it was an intellectual... Well, it wasn't an intellectual thing because... I, um, in the second prison, you were allowed to receive a phone call once a week, which was good. And um, I became friends with a, uh, 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 I think he was a Nigerian guy, a black guy came in who had been caught with a kilo of heroin in the bottom of his suitcase. So he got, 
immediately 20 years, and that would be 20 years without parole. And so he was destitute and low, obviously. And I took pity on him, and because uh, I was not going to try or risk my life to escape for just a four-year sentence, that, 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 that wasn't... And I didn't believe I'd stay in there four years. I had a lot of hope, and, you know. So I told him my escape plan. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I said, Sonny... Because uh, he, his name was Sonny, and he, um, I'd seen him, he was desperate, he was desperate, 20 years, uh, and he was, you know, some sort of uh, going over the wall with a rope ladder and blah, you know, and it's like, Sonny, you're forgetting one thing. Once a week, you're outside the bloody prison. Oh. You know, you, 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 to take a phone call, you have to go through the front gate and be taken by, by um, an, an armed guard round the corner to the jailer's office, which wasn't in the prison. He was the head... The, the, he was the guy who administratively ran it, um, the head jailer. And, and it, in his office, you'd take a, fo a phone call. I said, look, arrange to have one of your guys opposite in a car, give the guy a nudge and jump in the back and off you go and see if you can get across the border or just vanish. And that's exactly what we did. A week later, there was a big, big kerfuffle at the front gate. What's going on? What's going on? Sonny's bloody legged it. <laughs> and he, and he, he had followed the, 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 the simple plan to the letter. And, you know, we were in for the next uh, for another four or five months and we never heard from him again, which I was a bit disappointed. I, no postcard. I was looking for a postcard. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, I owe you big time. He'd probably... Uh, no, he'd have... Um, when would he have got out? This was 91, so... Uh, um, yeah, he would have got out in 2011. Whoa. If at all, because you tend to sort of get, get forgotten about and, you know, it's so chaotic, you know, there's no guarantees. Yeah, but that was, that was a... That was a um, that's a totally true story and, and, and uh, you know, what, what I was quite proud that I had managed to uh, save someone's bloody life, virtually. Did you see anyone else escape? No. That was the only incident in, in the whole time we were there that anyone escaped. Um, no. And, you know, we, 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 we really didn't see... I saw a couple of scuffles or whatever, but... Um, there wasn't any violence or, or whatever, you know. It was a tribute to the sort of the well-run um, setup that they have, where it's all all sort of policed by the prisoners themselves. What were the scuffles over? Um, I think they were to do with, um, as I said earlier, the the, it was the caste system and um, people looking down on a certain. Uh, group, uh, family, uh, cast as being inferior and therefore pushed around, um, you know, unless uh, they have to really keep their noses clean and, and, and behave. It's very difficult to understand for us in the West that the, the, the sort of caste system, that you know, certain families have precedence and I don't really, you know, it's, it's a very outdated um, system. Besides your co-defendants, did you make any friends... Yeah, 
I did. There was a Malaysian guy called Jono, who uh, I shared a room with. Who um, I think he had been, he was a uh, he was a silver smuggler. Um, and um, no one that I've st- stayed in touch with. I'm, I'm still in touch with the Australian um, Paul, who. Um, you know, my friend that I went went in with. Unfortunately, the Frenchman uh, tragically died um, a few, three or four years ago uh, of cancer, which was which was very sad. I don't know what the hell Rhett's doing. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of decent people. Um, you know, a lot of men all together playing chess, reading books, pottering about, having a laugh. Um, if you can. Um, come across being as confident you know it's a you know you have to put up i suppose in all society you put up a bit of a veneer um but in prison in particular it's it's important to sort of give the impression that you are confident because you are a fucking kung fu karate expert and you shouldn't be messed with you know that kind of impression so if you're giving a young person survival of advice about prison, what would yeah. you say? Yeah, don't be cowed by the experience um, and um, give off the impression of, 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 of being confident if you can and bear in mind that um, it's a fascinating stress test um, and when you come out, everything will be... Um, will seem relatively easy. It's a great... Uh, I, I, I'm not saying I recommend it for everyone because some people... That was the one thing I was determined it wouldn't do would make me, I don't know, quiet or angry or reserved in any way. I was determined it was going to be a positive uh, force for good. And it did turn out to be a force for good because... Instead of going back to being a stockbroker that I had been before I was ill, I kind of thought, well, I can't... I, can't, I mean, stockbrokers are all crooks anyway, but I, I thought I, I can't be going back to do that. And I was sent Loaded magazine by, um, actually, one of my stockbroker friends who would send me a, a box of goodies every month with tea bags and spam and... <laughs> <laughs> books and, and, and stuff like that. But he would also put in a, a copy of Loaded and I thought it was the most fantastic, wonderful thing and I just dreamed of living that kind of lifestyle. And uh, uh, um, it was just, um, I was I was um, bewitched by it. And sure enough, when I got out of prison and got my act together, I wrote it. I wrote my prison story for Loaded and they published it and... That was my foot in the door with Loaded, and uh, it was not long before I was, you know, hanging around the office and was given a, a, a small film review to do or something, and then a little bit more, and suddenly I I could say I was a, a writer for Loaded, and I was a writer for Loaded, and that was like being in Oasis, you know, that was that was that was like rock and roll in a kind of journalistic form, and it was just fucking superb. And very, very exciting. And, you know, if I hadn't had the prison story, I, I, it would have been difficult to get started. So would you credit the experience of prison setting your life in this whole new path? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it set me on a path of um, of journalism, um, but it also gave me the sort of um, you know resolute self confidence. Also, it wound me up like a spring because when I got out, I thought, "Jesus, I better get on with some kind of a career." Um, and that I put all into, you know, from being basically an ex-con who was unemployed on housing benefit. I put, um, I had all this energy and ambition uh, to become a uh, a journalist, and um, it worked. And um, so I'm very grateful to it for that. And then as a journalist, you know, I, I started my own Lads Mag uh, front, which went well. And then I then worked uh, as a senior, uh, the, as the editor at large, fe senior features writer of FHM, and went around the world doing things like Columbine and the Madrid train bombings and went to Chernobyl and incredible sort of adventures like that. And then did a, you know, joined the Mail on Sunday as a senior features writer, which was kind of less sexy, but still, you know, serious stuff and, and, and interesting stuff and more more interviews and things like that. But some adrenaline sports and, you know, only in journalism do you get to see to go to places and meet people and do those kind of things, which. You don't earn a fortune doing it, but in terms of uh, enriching your life, it's priceless. What was your last day of prison like? Last day of prison <laughs> was marvellous, obviously. we um, I think it was about 10.30, we were all let out of the front gate and the French vice consul. The French, were, I must say, were the best embassy. The English were uh, were shite, um, the Americans didn't like their boy. They knew he was a, a rotter, so they didn't have anything to do. The Australians were quite good, but the French were the best. And the French vice consul, Eric's um, vice consul, came and picked us up in his Jeep and drove us to his house on the outskirts of Kathmandu, where it's a sunny day, we're on the lawn... There's some, there's a spread of food that he's put on. He's like, oh, wow, and there's booze. And it's like, fucking great. <laughs> and I phoned my mum. He, he, he gave me his, 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 his uh, telephone and, and I phoned her and said, I'm out. And it was a, a, a huge sort of just sigh of relief. Obviously, we still had to get out of Nepal and... Um, you know, that was nerve-wracking because, you know, we had fucked up the gold smuggling and the gangsters were involved and, you know, you never know when people want to take revenge for something that you haven't done. So that was nerve-wracking. Um, but two days later, I got a, you know, plane with Tony and I was met at Gatwick by Crawley CID. Mr Hernew, where have you been? You know where I've been, uh, you know. Uh, now, if you don't mind, I'd like to get on with things. And, you know, just sort of... Tony gave them a tongue lashing because he's like, well, you know, for Christ's sake, you know, don't give them a hard time, you know. I've, I've, I've served my 
time I'm home and it's time to uh, to move on. But one thing I do remember vividly about getting out of prison on that day is we had a bottle of champagne, which Eric, the Frenchman, being a maitre d', was very keen to show us how with a, a cookery, which is a curved blade of, 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 of Nepal, you could just lop the top off a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and you can see what went on here. <laughs> like that, the whole thing shattered. And this expensive champagne soaked into the lawn. And um, we pissed ourselves. And uh, that was um, one of a, a, of a number of um, funny and, and enjoyable incidents on, on what was a really a, an idyllic day with food and booze and great celebration and excitement. What did it feel like to finally give your mum a hug after you got back? Oh, well, that was... That was um, very um, moving. Uh, that was, you know, coming through customs <laughs> at Gatwick, this time without anything on me, uh, apart from my tail between my legs slightly. But, you know, and then a big... My mum and dad and... A, and there were a couple of other people there. They didn't say, didn't have a sign saying "Welcome back from prison." Thankfully, but uh, you know, it, it was um, it was uh, that's when you kind of uh, that's the sort of uh, the pivot point where whereby you you know you you you're back with your family and you know the that. Uh, situation is over and it's time to move on to a new chapter and that's a, that's a really nice feeling Where did you stay once you got back? Um, I stayed with my mother briefly and then um, somebody uh, a girl I knew in uh, in Oval in London let me sleep in her cellar on a, on a wooden door <laughs> With a bit of a mattress on it, but it was totally dark. You know, no no windows, no straw, no straw. But it was it was another bloody cell. But basically, I was I was keen to get going, and and I was happy. You know, sounds like uh, like so I'm some old fuddy duddy, but I was happy to you know just sleep anywhere and 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 and, and be up in London, um, getting on with uh, being you know what what, what being, being a, a sort of young man in a, sorry <laughs> in a lovely. Um, in an exciting city, you know, and I was quite keen to, well, maybe have sex again. Was was, was probably, <laughs> probably, uh, probably. Were you wondering if it still worked? I had checked that it was working uh, on a number of occasions, but it's um, not easy to find any privacy uh, in in a. In a in, in a in a prison. Well, that's why I didn't ask you. Was it? What's the showers like in the Nepalese prison? Um. Is it a single shower or a communal fire? Oh no! I now yeah no it was um yeah there was a communal single shower but um you had to queue for it and you generally I think everyone uh, had a shower with their underpants on from what I remember which is probably a good thing uh, because um, it was out in the open. It was, I think, uh, it was some sort of shower head um, attached to the external wall. Um, 
And so um, people would do that in the morning or the evening. Uh, yeah. So if you took too long having a wank, you would piss the queue off. That's what, that's what it was like in America. They're all like, get out of there. We know you're jacking off in there. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as long as you've not got some bloke waiting for you to pick up the soap, you know, that's the danger in American jails anyway. Were there no lady boys then in Nepal? No. Not that I uh, noticed. No, there weren't any. And I think... I think uh, we benefited from the fact that... I th I think... The, the, the important thing about Nepal is that A, it's uh, Buddhist and B, it's never been invaded by the white man. So the white man isn't seen as an enemy and also the English obviously have this very close affinity with Nepal um, with the Gurkhas who are, are you know, a, a, a regiment that is populated entirely of Nepalese and so so that was all very, very positive. Also, because of their established caste system, a white man is seen as, you know, um, somewhere near the top of the caste system and things like that. And so a lot of them, you know, may not have known uh, or had friends who were white or English. And so you're seen of an, uh, as a rather a tall oddity because, you know, most of them are... are I'm not particularly tall myself, I'm five foot ten, but most of them are sort of less tall than me. So, you know, um, physically you're a bit, you know, that helps. And um, I think your skin colour helps as well. Was it a loaded magazine article that drew the attention of the people who produced your Bang Up Abroad documentary? Or did that come about in a different way? Um, I think it came about from the... The article I wrote for The Independent, um, it was on the front page of the second section of The Independent uh, newspaper, which is now defunct, but um, it, was a, it was a big piece, and it had a big photo of me saying, gold-fingered, um, how a city whiz kid, which I wasn't particularly, but um, how it came to be landed in a Kathmandu jail. And that is still online. Um, we'll put that in the description box below the video if you want to read that. Mm, that's still online, and that's about that was the first thing I ever 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 had published, and that was two and a half thousand words. And I, you know, I had three weeks to write that, and I could polish it and sleep on it and improve it, and then make the intro better. And I, yeah, I, all, I enjoyed doing all of this. I thought, yes, yeah, this journalism is is really the thing I should be doing. It's, it's. I'm, I think I'm quite good at it, and I, I enjoy the pro, the creative process. And uh, that, I think, alerted, uh, banged up abroad. And um, I was on in the second series. The first series had gone well. And then they'd, thankfully, they'd said, well, you know, here's a load more money. You can do some, um, you, you know, get actors in to play people and recreate it more authentically. What year was it filmed? I've no idea, actually. That's a good question. And did you get interviewed in London? Yeah. And then the day to take um, the actors and do a location anywhere. Because my location was South Africa, so it looked like the Arizona yeah. desert. Yeah, that's right. They, I think they went to somewhere like Malaysia 
or, or somewhere where, where it was cheap, but it was hot, and you know there were Asian extras that they could use. I met the actual guy who played me. Were you, were you happy with him? Yeah, he was great, and I was. I'm still in touch with him. Um, he's an actor. Um, I can't remember his bloody name. Um, um, but yeah, we met, and you know, it was a good thing for him because. You know, these dramatised documentaries um, are a good stepping stone for young actors to get, um, you know, you do need to be able to, to act and do it convincingly. And he was playing, you know, uh, a, a scared middle-class um, boy in a foreign land who doesn't know what the fuck's going to happen to him. Um, and I thought he did superbly well. In fact, I was very pleased with the Banged Up Abroad in general they uh, stuck to the script pretty well and I think uh, dramatised it nicely and made it a, a, a convincing and enjoyable uh, and authentic uh, telling. And um, I think most of all it was uh, entertaining. To get it down to 45 minutes and get the story like that, it's, it's impressive, isn't it? Because I was filmed for two days and then my, they filmed my parents on the third day. And to distill that down yeah. to 45 minutes, I was happy with what they put together. What what uh, series were you in? I can't remember, but I believe it premiered about five years ago. I see, right. And is that, that was presumably, they're all online, aren't they? Yeah. I'll, I haven't seen your one yet, I'll, which mine, is bad. They go up and down off YouTube because of copyright. Yeah. Yours is presently on YouTube. I'm going to put that in the description box below the video. Mine's called Raving Arizona. It's back up on YouTube right now. I'll, I'll send you the link okay, to Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you were satisfied with the experience you had then with the, with the whole Bang Up Abroad thing? Yeah, it was great. And um, it's nice to be able to... Um, I told a story in print twice uh, for Loaded and for The Independent. And to have that documented is... It's great, you know, if something you can be proud of, um, you know, it sounds strange. But, you know, there's no point in being ashamed of going to prison. Uh, sometimes it can be as a result of being stupid or nasty or sometimes it can just be what happens. And, you know, if you can sort of encapsulate it and celebrate it, then you turn it into a force for good. The Bangor Abroad episodes became the most watched thing on that geo on the channel oh. and they constantly repeat them all over the world mm. so do you get a lot of people contacting you because I get like someone saying Sean I was just backpacking in like, <laughs> yeah. Indonesia and I was in this little old hotel room yeah and then your episode came on yeah do you get do you get messages yeah and stuff? I mean you know some bloke in a mud hut in Sri Lanka you know <laughs> saying hello Piers tell us what it was like said, well, you've just watched it you nutter <laughs> That's what it was like. Um, it's quite interesting where you suddenly discover that it's being shown in the Azores or something. And he's like, blimey, where's that? And um, yeah, you're right. And suddenly it'll be um, it'll be recycled and, and, and shown again. And, and but, but having said that, I've just come off Facebook because I couldn't bloody stand it. So I'm, I'm going to be less aware of, um, uh, of, of things like that. Yeah. <laughs> if people, if you're on Facebook, then if, if people watching this video now want to contact you, how would they do that? If, would, or would you even want people to be contacted? Yeah, if they want. Um, do you have a web I mean, page? you contacted me. Oh, you have a web page? Have you think? Have you stuff on it? 
You what? Do you have a web page? No. No. Okay. Unlike you, I don't have that sort of uh, (laughs) self-aggrandizement and hubris. Um, I like to give you a little bit more low-key. No, but um, obviously you have a legitimate reason. You've got a a book and and various things, and you're doing this. But no, I mean, I I don't know. I'll give you my email address, or or you can put my email address if if people want to say you're a wanker, (laughs) aren't you? (laughs) I I know that, and in fact, I talked about that. So I think some of these millions of people who've watched your episode... And if it if it premiered, it must be almost ten years ago now. Yours, yeah. If if it did, people might be wondering what the bloody hell's he been doing for the past ten years. Yeah. So has it all been journalism? Yeah. It has all been. Uh, well, no. I mean, I've been a lot of partying as well. But um, you know, um, it's all been journalism. I, I I managed to put some money down on a flat in Camden. In uh, 2000, uh, when I was editing uh, Front magazine, and then I worked for FHM for four years, and then I worked for The Mail on Sunday. That's all been sort of journalism. I got married uh, seven years ago. um, For the, I'd never lived with a woman before. I moved in with uh, Jenny. We're still happily married, and we um, uh, have a good time. We uh, have chosen not to have any kids, but we do have a new kitten, which is very exciting. <laughs> and, um, you know, and still doing journalism and I've, I've branched out into a few other, a, a, bit, a little bit of property and things like that. And, um, you know, I'm eager to see what next. Well, congratulations, man. That's a positive note for us to wind this up on. What I really like about his story is a lot of people go to prison and then they get out and they say like I've, 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 you know, I'm an ex-con now, I can't get a job and this, it's, it's like baggage it's like weighs them down and I've got to admit I've, so many people I've met have been to prison peers it's like water off a duck's back to you it's like you just use this experience to strengthen yourself and go on with this resilience this robustness, I, th- I find that really inspirational I think to young people who are watching this, um, you know, obviously they can see the dangers of, of the lesson learned here. Yeah. And you, you, it sounds like you were just really naive back then in your early 20s and, you, you know, saw this profit opportunity, had no money from your travels and you're just mm. trying to capitalize. But um, we've shown today the hell that it can lead to and also how someone can just come out the other side and be so fucking successful. So, you know, kudos to you, man. That's, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks so much for coming and on. And you too. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Thanks.